Well, I have managed to drag myself out of bed to record this week's pod, having been absolutely floored with a cold for the past four days. So, febrile but present, this is LJ and you're listening to Careers Talk. I should explain that one of the reasons I was so determined to make it in for the recording this week was the lure of interviewing our cracking studio guest, Mr David Prest, a man I have to admit I was a little nervous of taking on as he is a king of all things radio, a producer, a presenter, an award winner and an all-time radio heavyweight. The water's just below us. Every now and again we get a jerk of turbulence and the whole thing just shifts violently to one side. I can't do anything about it. No just the job this week. Instead, producer Kate has been out and about to bring us news of an intriguing new exhibition all about kissing. Julian Lindley is right on the money with his tip this week, which is all about taking responsibility for yourself at work, particularly when you're ill. But first, we say hello to Kerry. Hello, Kerry. Hiya. And we're going to talk about a Q&A, aren't we? Yep. This week, I'm going to be talking about digital marketing Q&A. That wasn't actually this week. It was last week. But that was really interesting. And we had a great panel, including digital marketing mogul, Dr. Dave Chaffee. And he's written books. He's a consultant. And he's a CEO of a website called Smart Insights, which offers tips and stuff to digital marketers. Okay. And we also had Ben Waldell, didn't we? And he's yep. one of our experts. Yeah. Ben Waldell from the Chartered Institute of marketing he's our expert on the site offering advice on anything you want to ask about marketing and we also had the institute of direct marketing and we had a couple of like integrated pr agencies and you know creative agencies that are working in digital marketing. so just tell me about i mean what, what does it mean and why is there a specific area for digital marketing as opposed to just marketing is it something very different well because with the surge in social media there's a lot of different platforms that people can now use right. to talk about their brands and to promote products and services so a lot of traditional marketing professionals are looking to expand their skills and move into that area as more companies want to sort of win over those areas right and so what was the advice was the advice to go and get a university course specifically on digital marketing or what, what was the There advice? was quite a lot of talk about courses actually and you can do an MA in digital marketing. God, can you? Yeah, I'm, I don't know if many places do it. I know e-consultancy do it and the Manchester Metropolitan University Business School they do it as well but you can also do courses through Chartered Institute of Marketing and the Institute of Direct Marketing and there was a lot of debate about which is better actually. So if you're thinking about professional development, they're both probably your best bet if you're already in the industry. Um, And the case for and against um, Chartered Institute of Marketing, they've got centres all over the country. So the benefit there is that you can get face-to-face tuition regardless of where you are regionally. And Dave Chaffee, our marketing mogul, said that that's definitely better, especially for the networking opportunities and stuff. And CIM is massively recognised by recruiters. In fact, you can probably find that they'll state that on a job spec, that they want someone who has that qualification because so many people have got it in the industry. Whereas IDM, the Institute of Direct Marketing, they do a distance learning course as well as being based in London. So if you can't get to London, you can do the online learning, but then you haven't got the benefit of face-to-face. However, they cover broader and deeper topics which are going to impress an employer as well. So you have to weigh up what you want from the course and you know think about what the other students have said, do some research into it. And were many companies mentioned specifically for, for, to go to for work, working for or is 
is that kind of a role that you get employed within a bigger company to do? There were agencies mentioned and it's agencies that usually take on the work for clients. So oh, you'll right. get like creative agencies and integrated PR agencies that are also doing traditional PR um, as well as online. So you'll be working for a portfolio. So one of our panellists, Rachel Clark, she's at Launch Group. She looks after people like the Royal British Legion. Disney World and Casio and does campaigns to them and one of the campaigns that she did which I think illustrates what the digital marketing can be really well is the Twin Town Disney campaign Mm -hmm. where they set up a microsite and invited people from various towns and cities to put their town forward to apply to be twinned with Disney World Orlando oh yeah so it was sort of quite a fun competition thing and you could win a holiday to Disneyland so it raises awareness of the brand and it's also quite interactive that you can take part in it and you know because it was fun it gathered quite a lot of news coverage and Mm. attention that's great thanks very much Kerry no problem And now for something a little bit different. Producer Kate took a mic down to Bournemouth and here's what she found. I'm Jamie, I'm from London and I'm looking at her pieces and they're these these small glowing glass cubes that have got these strange shapes inside them and when you look inside them, well, they're sort of kisses but trapped in these cubes. My name's Hans. The thing that sort of strikes you first up about the exhibition is it, it sort of brings a kind of amazing physicality and, and corporeality to the act of kissing, which, you know, when you do it for yourself is a very sort of ethereal thing. And, and this sort of, the actual exhibits kind of make it look extraordinarily kind of physical and bodily and, you know, sometimes almost a bit off-putting. They look gorgeous and they're fascinating because there's, there's something going on in there that you sort of have to work out. And you have to work out how it's a kiss and how it, it was someone's mouth and tongue and teeth. And they look spectacular. They're these little magic boxes of something. I'm here at the Arts University College of Bournemouth at the opening night of an exhibition called The Anatomy of Desire, which is by artist Charlie Murphy. I'm here with Charlie Murphy, um, who's looking very excited on her opening night. Charlie, tell us a little bit about this exhibition and, and what, we're, what we're looking at, what we can see. Um, well, um, as you come into the gallery, you can see projected and on the far wall a very large projection of people kissing. It's a video piece that I've made from... Uh, touring kissing event that I've been doing for 10 years. In front of the projection is um, a series of plinths which form what I call a field of desire which basically shows off my glass kiss sculptures which are negative spaces of the inside of people's kisses suspended within a block of glass. So they're illuminated from underneath so that they glow and you can actually look in through the glass at all the beautiful details of the kiss. Uh, My name is Josepha and um, I actually work at Artsway, which is a contemporary art gallery in the New Forest. Well, I went to see one of her kissing events uh, a couple of years ago, and a lot of art can be um, quite difficult to get to grips with, but Charlie's events were so much fun and just really, really lovely. There's this slight awkwardness, uh, but then it was sort of like a celebration of, of love, I suppose, or just intimacy. 
how did you get where you are today? I mean, you're, you're a professional working artist. What's, what's the career path that has led you to this point? I began my career um, studying photojournalism, actually, but I very quickly realised that I wasn't really a photojournalist. I was more of a fine artist because I wanted to be much more experimental. I also found that quite macho, which wasn't really my scene. So I studied fine art photography at Farnham. And when I graduated from there, I'd actually made a digital video from stills, which at that time was really problematic, technically, because it wasn't really set up to do multimedia at that point. Um, but that gave me a real launch into a world of kind of new media, which was just emerging. And that was a real launch pad for me, having left college to make my first professional piece of work as a commission, exhibit it as a solo show. I'm deputy principal here, but I also have responsibility for the gallery, the gallery programme. This is for a careers podcast, so while we're interested in the art, we're also interested in, in art as a career. Now, a lot of parents, on hearing that their darling daughter or son wants to be an artist, the heart might sink. Um, what, what would be your response to that? Is, is art a viable career? Yes, absolutely, it's a career. What I would do is point parents to is the contribution that the creative industries make to our gross domestic product in this country and our contribution internationally. The creative industries are really one of the, the sort of main drivers of the economy and there are huge employment opportunities within the creative industries which is where our graduates head and in fact we report, and this isn't just ourselves, this is um, the government's higher education statistics, we report progression into employment from our students of some 96%, which is good. So do you think it's, it's quite important as an artist to, to be able to sort of mix and match those skills in different, different professional fields so that you can, you, you can call upon your teaching skills, you can work as a teacher if you're not working as an artist, or you can work as a photographer, or is it important to be able to, to have a sort of a patchwork career, if you like? I think it's, it's absolutely vital. Uh, unless you're one of about 0.5% of the kind of A-list commercial artists, you have to be able to be versatile. You have to respond to whatever opportunities or whatever um, your circumstances are you, to survive and to pay your rent. You need a regular income. It's not an easy choice by any means. It's not a very quick way of getting rich. <laughs> but I mean, the important thing for me is that I get to do really interesting things. Being an artist is not an easy road, um, but it, it's probably more interesting than becoming a bank clerk. So. <laughs> Oh, I absolutely love that music. Mm, it's really emotional. Isn't it? You, oh, it really gets you, doesn't it? So deep. Lovely. And I really want to see those little glass cubes. They the way amazing, they describe they? them, it's like picturing it. With light going through it and, and everything. about kissing as yeah. well. Yeah. So uh, I need to tell you a few things just in case you are interested in going to see the exhibition. That was obviously Kate Taylor talking to the artist, Charlie Murphy. And the exhibition is at the Arts University College in Bournemouth. And the exhibition is 
is called the Atomy, sorry, the Anatomy of Desire. It's on until the 5th of March and it's free to get in. And there is a website, it's textandwork.org.uk but we'll put that up on the careers site so you can check for opening times. And I just also want to let you know that the deputy principal of the college that you heard speaking was um, called Jim Hunter. And two tip of the week which is based around one of Julian Lindley's pet hates and one that I actually share with him that of colleagues coming to work when they are ill me accepted of course today Hmm. his tip of this week is be responsible for yourself this week my tip is take responsibility for yourself especially when you're starting off in your career it's kind of easy to fall into the same patterns that you've experienced before. So obviously you've lived with your parents and they've taken responsibility for you. Your teachers and lecturers at university in a way start to take responsibility for you as well. But when you start in the workplace, it's a completely different dynamic because you're finally being paid to do something and you're expected to deliver something in return for that money. And I think it's important that you accept that that is the way things are going to be and that in actual fact, the way that you behave and the things that you do at work uh, are very responsible and you're not acting in a childlike way and you'd be amazed at the amount of people that don't quite grasp that and behave in very childlike fashions in meetings and when you tell them that their work isn't quite up to scratch. I think it's important, especially at this time of year and especially at the moment, because I'm seeing so many people coming into work with really dreadful colds. And it does my head in because I just think stay at home, take responsibility for yourself. I'm not your parent. I'm not going to tell you to go home or not come into work. It's your decision. But what drives me crackers is that people come into work, lope around the place the entire day, being no use to anybody, coughing and spluttering. And certainly this was a big issue when I was running Heat because, you know, we're a weekly magazine working with a very small team of staff. And if one person comes in and starts to spread germs around the office, it could be really serious uh, implications for the business. You know, you're an adult now. You now have to take responsibility for yourself and make that decision about whether or not you are going to be useful at work and whether or not you are contagious. So I know you're laughing there, Kerry, because I'm actually ill and I am actually in work. But in my defence, <laughs> I've come in because I didn't want to miss David Press. But I totally agree with him. No, I forgive you for coming in. Thank I'm glad you, you did because I would have missed you terribly. Thank you. But I completely agree. I don't like it when people come in and affect me and feel sorry for themselves. And if I'm going to get ill when they've been ill, I do. Oh no, it's really, riles. yeah. I, I hate Contagious. it well. I love the use I, of word. That's what made me laugh. And also, I like that loping about the place as well because that's what people do, feeling sorry for themselves. It's like, just go home. don't want to. I'm not going to feel sorry for them. No, me neither. Apart from you. Thanks. So Julian actually does go on to mention other areas where you need to take responsibility, including timekeeping and behaving with respect in meetings and to hear the whole piece go to careers.guardian.co.uk but thank you very much Julian. Joining me in the studio now is founder and managing director of the independent radio production company Whistledown, which is one of the largest independent suppliers of programmes to BBC Radio. David has an enormous list of programmes he has either presented or produced, including the award-winning The Reunion and Letters from Guantanamo. He has in fact won three Sonys and worked his way around the world a number of times. Welcome David, David Press. Hello. Thank you very much for coming in and joining us. I'm a bit nervous about having you in because your career is amazing (laughs) and you've done so much on radio. Um, So uh, I'm really looking forward to 
learning more. So before we talk about your background, tell us a bit about your company and what you do day to day and, uh, you know, give us a sort of flavour of where you're at at the moment. Well, fortunately, the BBC is very keen on encouraging independent producers. So outside of the BBC, we're coming up with ideas, we're formulating programme formats and strands, and we're going to commissioning editors to talk to them about these programmes. And we deal with Radio 4, we deal with Radio 2, a little bit of 5 Live, Asian Network, BBC World Service. And so we're looking for stories all the time. And so a lot of my time is spent talking to people who potentially could make presenters or reporters or could have ideas that we can then develop into a programme or a programme format. Right. So just tell us a bit about uh, how that works. And I mean, people won't understand really, I think, how sort of Radio 4 yeah. puts their schedule together. So in terms of their sort of staple and what they produce in-house and how they commission outside, give us a sort yeah. of understanding of that. Well, I think if people are thinking about an idea for a documentary, and we're talking about, you know, people with a story to tell, whether it be an, an enthusiastic graduate with an idea, having done a little bit of local radio or a little bit of student radio, or whether it's a, a well-established journalist who's got a, a programme that they want to make. They get together with an independent producer, maybe, and they come up with the way to, um, to, to package it up, to format it, and then we go and talk to a commission editor on their behalf. The balance is around about 15% of Radio 4's output is, is commissioned from independent producers. So that's a fair whack over a year, and a company our size, we're probably one of the largest, we're probably making close to 100 hours a year. That's the process, and that's, so it's a really, I think, it's great because it actually allows us to hoover up all sorts of different uh, interest groups and people with stories to tell and then put them in front of the listeners and it's direct communication there's no messing about I don't feel it's like television these days where you've got to really squeeze it into a box and put some sort of clever little jingles and formats and hey come and make your confessions to the diary room kind of stuff in it <laughs> it's not like that it's a direct link to people and it brings me back to this is what I got involved in radio for which is telling the real stories like they are and it's the thing that everybody seems to forget a lot of the time and my uh, inspirational figure if you like one of my inspirational figures was the Chicago oral historian Studs Terkel and broadcaster he had a program which ran on public radio in Chicago for 50 odd years and was networked all over the country the list of people he interviewed is is absolutely stellar from presidents to heads of state to great writers of the 20th century, to philosophers of even the turn of the 19th century. So extraordinary individuals. And he once did an interview with, I think it was a Jewish immigrant who'd come to America. She'd set up a hardware store in Chicago and she'd made a success of it. And he found her a fascinating individual. He used to go and buy his tax and his nails from her. He interviewed her and he played it back. And the word she said, the phrase she said back when she listened to herself on the tape was, I never knew I felt that way. Mm. And for me, that sort of captures mm. a lot of what radio should be about. As a kid, were you listening to a lot of radio? Were you inspired as a child to listen? How did you get into radio? Oh, that's that. I started just playing with a tape recorder and a microphone at home. I was just given one for Christmas, and I thought, hey, this is funny. It had really big buttons. It was a bit of a Fisher-Price <laughs> thing. And then around about 15, my dad probably was, was frustrated with me just sitting in the bedroom sort of playing with a tape recorder and said, why don't you go and talk to this bloke I met who works at the local radio station. Went to see him. I said, what can I do? And he said, well, you know, there's this funny old religious program that goes on on Sunday morning at 9 o'clock 
between you and me, nobody listens to it, but it's done by a very well-meaning bunch of people. And, you know, they're, re- they're really sort of, they're nice. They're a nice bunch. And I went there on a Friday night, and it was like the, an ecumenical general synod. There was a Methodist and a United Reformed person, a Pentecostalist from Blackpool. And, and it, was, it was an amazing mix. And, and I was there, and I did stupid things like choosing the music for somebody's pause for thought. And, you know, and I was obsessed with Mike Goldfield for some reason, so every pause for thought had Mike Goldfield on it. But, you know, it was all that sort of thing. And just gradually, gradually, you get sucked in and you started playing with stuff and you make idiot mistakes and then you sort of you, you learn the intricacies and the nuances of what makes it what makes it exciting so did you make any uh, features of your family I can't I tell you what I did do <laughs> I tell you that the I was very excited about uh, about recording the sound effects and all that sort of thing and I, and I nagged my dad to drive us up to the Lake District from Blackburn to uh, in the early hours of the morning to record the eerie sound of the bittern <laughs> booming across the marshes and if you've ever heard it it is extraordinary yeah. I'll, I'll try and recreate it if you imagine a sort of dawn rising over Silverdale in the Lake District and you hear this sound and that is the boom of the bitten and I did capture it at the age of 11 and it was very exciting yeah, but moments. it was Ter- <laughs> terrifying there's a confession so uh, did you then what did you go to university and study or so what was it how did you get I did a politics degree at university which allowed me to have a year out and in that year out I worked at local radio I worked for Radio Kent I was covering or assisting reporters who were covering the uh, Siemens dispute in Dover so I saw sort of how news journalists worked and I was doing packages and doing stories for the breakfast program and for an afternoon program and doing silly things like that I then gravitated to other jobs in local radio presenting music shows I didn't particularly enjoy that I was aware that I wasn't kind of a disc jockey. Right. And I think a lot of people have that sort of the dawning realisation moment Mm. in your career that you're probably not best suited to that. And eventually it was towards sort of production that I went via a a funny old phrase working in the BBC Travel Centre, which was this this strange sort of organisation that used to do uh, the road reports. So you'd, you'd, and the the great gag at that time, you wouldn't be able to do it now because of the BBC compliance (laughs) limits, that you'd lean into the microphone and with a sort of voice like that, you'd go and there's a a long tail bike on the A120 coming towards Hangar Lake. And so, you know, people would think you were in a helicopter. Just occasionally we do it at the weekend. The one shift that everybody dreaded was the afternoon shift. Or the late drive time shift. It was probably between sort of five and and eight o'clock. And there was this absolute idiot on GLR Travel in the evening presenter. And, And he tried to ask you what you, if you'd had a, sexual liaison with her with anybody the night before and oh. whether you were doing this and whether you're doing it and we all thought oh god do we really have to do that bloke on GLR what's his name again Chris Chris Evans oh, oh no was it we dreaded it it was awful to this day I have a morbid <laughs> dislike for that man <laughs> the pain he put people through. All he wanted to do was look at where the next crash was and where the next incident was. You were desperately trying to write, and all he wanted to know was if he'd seen the latest porn film by somebody or other. <laughs> oh, dear. So um, travel became quite a massive part of your career, didn't it? Yeah, I, I got excited. It was a very exciting program to work on. I worked on a Radio 4 program called Breakaway, which was fantastic. It allowed you to go around the world and you'd get companies to take you on lavish trips. I went to Benidorm for a day. Wow. I went to extraordinary places around the world. I went whitewater rafting with Bill Oddie in Costa Rica. 
<laughs> I went to the Far East. I was one of the first people as a tourist doing a tourist guide around Tiananmen Square not wow. long after the the, uh, the the massacre there. And I mean, probably one of my most frightening experiences was having to go over the Zambezi and over Victoria Falls when you could get into Zimbabwe in an extraordinary micro-like. We shouldn't have been going up there. There were huge crosswinds and there were massive great alligators about 100 yards below. Below us, the Zambezi is, looks incredible. It just funnels into the falls, disappears into nothing. And in the middle of the island, which is in the middle of the Zambezi, we can see crocodiles floating along in the, in the small lakes. What am I doing? Hippo! Oh! That was a bit of a bump. Julian's guiding us in. All I can do sometimes is just look at the back of his neck for reassurance. The water is just below us. Every now and again we get a jerk of turbulence and the whole thing just shifts violently to one side. And, oh, my foot is involuntarily shaking. I can't do anything about it. I've got the nervous jitters and we hit the ground. Here we go now. We're hitting easy and we're pulling up on the, on the crossbar. And down we come. Down. Oh. 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 <laughs> there you go. What do you think of that? That's frightening. <laughs> Bloody terrifying. <sighs> oh my god. Do you have to be good at communicating and describing things at the start? Is that something you sort of get better at and more experienced at as oh, you go you along? Oh, you pick it up. You pick it up. I mean, you know, I think it's about sort of capturing emotions as well, isn't it, really? It's, it's yeah, if you describe a building, there's no point saying it's, you know, 423 metres high. You're saying it's as tall as Nelson's Column and then add another 50 feet. You've got to sort of give it a nice a domestic feel kind of thing. And, 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 you know, you've got to then describe something without necessarily going into the floor. And this is always the thing where with doing a travel program, actually, or there were always certain cliches that you had to avoid. You know, cosmopolitan mix, uh, heady mix, <laughs> thickly wooded hillsides. I remember once telling a reporter who'd written a script which had the line, "And I came to my guest house round an unremarkable bend in the road." And I said, "Well, why on earth are you describing it as an unremarkable bend? It's unremarkable. Let's not remark on it." There's a clue there, and so you learn you learn the sort of things the idiot mistakes not to do. Let's talk about the different mediums that you worked in. So, you know, you've worked in print and on radio, and also you're moving into films now? Well, this sounds very grand. We've got a, a programme that we made a few years ago, a reunion uh, programme, which we make for Radio 4 with Sue McGregor, where we gather people together and, and, uh, and they, they reminisce about an event they were involved with. And we did one on the 1968 strike at the Dagenham Car Factory in Essex with, it was the machinists, the girls who, made the seat covers and did all the upholstery work on the Ford Cortinas and the Escorts in the 1960s, went on strike in 1968. It was a national story, a huge thing. It was the first all-women strike in Britain since the 1909 Bryant and May Match Girl strike in Nottingham. And, and so it was a huge media event and they were on the front page of the Daily Mail and they walked down towards Parliament in protest with the banners We want sexual equality, only poor old Ginger Lil at the end, she hadn't unravelled her banner properly and it <laughs> said we want sex. We want sex. 
And we so we did this programme and it was it was it was heard. Fortunately it was heard by a very important film producer called Stephen Woolley, who thought it was great and he loved this story about the We Want Sex thing. And so he's developed uh, he's developed a film as a result of our radio programme and we get a tiny credit right at the end of the programme, which is very nice. As associate producer, I think, isn't <laughs> Something it? Like yeah, that, yeah. So you weren't you didn't actually go in on set. We we didn't pitch no, or anything like that, no. but I'm I'm waiting for my ticket for the premiere. It'd be fun, yeah. I hope they do it, do it justice. <laughs> yeah, let's hope so yeah. for, for those people involved, really. So writing for print and writing for radio, what are the differences? Is that it's, an easy question to answer? It's a difficult one because you sort of do it and, and I kind of, you know, it's sec- it becomes second nature after a while for everybody working in radio. But I think, you know, it's it's punching right to the core of something. Even in a in a way, it's much closer to tabloid writing than it is to writing for something like the guardian or the observer um you're you're right to the core of a story with a really good hook right at the top and just carrying people through and then the choice of language you use you know you're going to use words radio producers love words that begin with hard letters so we love cracking (laughs) when you read an autobiography of someone who's worked in radio you can always tell because they are using words like that which are very explosive onomatopoeic words that can really sort of grab people in and good words to say Yeah. Not only have you worked on different mediums, but you've also done quite different subject matter. So you worked on Graham Greene's Travel Diaries, the mm. adaptation for radio. How different was that, adapting someone else's work? And But it's really interesting. I mean, obviously, I was a big Graham Greene fan yeah, for years and, and really wanted to, to do something. And actually, uh, we, there were Travel Diaries, but also one of the great things that I discovered were the film diaries, uh, the film reviews of Graham Greene, which he wrote for 1930s and 40s publications. I, I looked at the, uh, at the reviews and I sort of adapted them and did little introductions from various other pieces of autobiography. So it was all the words of Graham Greene, and I was very keen to make sure that we weren't we weren't playing with it excessively and and making it sound like it wasn't Graham Greene. And then I just found alighted on the actor Jeffrey Palmer, who for me was did a, a most amazing job as the voice of Graham Greene. And and I listened to Graham Greene interviews from the sixties. He got the voice so perfectly. It was it was a very easy thing to do because you were working with the great Graham Greene and then the great actor Jeffrey Palmer, who then interpreted it in a wonderful way. And it, it was a lovely piece to to work on. And so it is always fascinating to work with with writing with material that comes to you to adapt in that sense but also it's really for me it's still about finding those stories that are there to be told and, and finding good people to tell them so how different was working on something like that to working on letters from Guantanamo w- what were the differences well, it's quite interesting I mean you know there was very similarities you're, you're trying to get the intrinsic heart of of somebody's writing um, with letters just, from Guantanamo yeah, I was going to say perhaps I mean, we should just um, explain we can even hear an extract in a moment but uh, it was it was a program which sort of fell into our lap a uh, very wonderful producer Kate Taylor who discovered that um, there were letters written by an inmate of Guantanamo Bay Samuel Hajj which were being smuggled out by his lawyer and Radio 4 was offered them uh, to make into a radio program and we did that but obviously that was the start of quite a long journey for Kate and, uh, and myself in sort of making sure that we were telling the story properly and that we weren't just being used as communication fodder for al-Qaeda propaganda and that this man had a genuine story to tell and he wasn't just an apologist for, 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 for uh, Osama bin Laden. They hit me again and again. My eyelid was cut and my face was covered in blood. They shaved my head, my beard and my moustache and then they put me in solitary where they left me to swim in my own blood. When I felt that I had almost lost consciousness from the loss of blood, 
I asked for the medical team. They came and through the opening where they pass food trays, which is no more than three inches by ten inches, they sewed three stitches in my eyelid and gave me some drugs, claiming that they were antibiotics. I fell asleep from the strength of them. At the end of the day, it was a question of putting the facts in front of people and making them decide. And that's the nice thing about radio. You don't have to come to a neat conclusion. You can sometimes just leave things hanging and let the listeners decide because you've got to respect the fact that the listener has a matter of opinion or a sense of whether a story is right or just or not and can probably make the same judgments that you're making. But it's probably better that you just leave it. You hold the, hold it back. So you're involving the listener much more in a story and allowing them to judge for themselves. So before we go on to talking about some advice for people moving into radio, I just want a little bit of personal advice myself. Because I know you also... Was it produced or presented the financial news? Yeah, I did. I did a very strange program, um, which was actually produced by an independent production company, which was then sent out to all of the independent local radio stations around the country. It was called Grandly Independent Financial News. <laughs> and I still have people sort of saying, weren't you the bloke that used to do the independent financial news? And, and it was a strange mystery to me because I went into an attic room somewhere in uh, somewhere near Smithfield Market. There was a porn cinema underneath, I remember. <laughs> and then we were in the attic and I had a pair of headphones that clearly had been nicked from a Virgin Atlantic executive <laughs> flight. And it was the most ramshackle organisation um, you can imagine. But we used to do this daily thing that was sent out. And it was, it was a constant amusement for me that people sort of still keep saying, you know, oh yes, independent financial news, I remember that. <laughs> so what tips can you give me? I'd keep your ear to the ground. I'd, I'd cultivate your contacts and people with better knowledge than you've got. <laughs> well, that won't be hard. <laughs> okay, let's talk about people wanting to move into radio and also some advice about how to present on radio for, you know, are there any tips when, when you're presenting a programme, what you should be careful of? We take it in sort of two parts. Yeah, I mean, well, let's first of all, I mean, in terms of getting involved in the industry, I mean, these days it's fantastic. It's so easy to get some experience of some sort, um, whether it's schools radio, which is a massively developing area. Um, the software is cheap. You can do it yourself. You can learn how to edit on a, on a PC at home for very, very small amount of outlay for a software package. There are a plethora of stations. There's hospitals radio there are community radio stations there's the traditional local radio route and and look at things like community service volunteer teams which work through local radio and look at internet stations and for goodness sake even if you can learn how to edit and you can fix yourself a microphone do your own show do it as a podcast and then start sending it to internet radio stations and get them to rebroadcast it so you're building up as it were your brand and your experience and when you're applying for jobs don't just send in the form and then think, oh dear, I didn't get it, and walk away. You know, send an email, ask why you didn't get it, but also ask if you can come and see what other people do, and if you can come and have a chat, and if you can come and do some work experience and just have a coffee. And always flatter people. I always think it's very, I mean, I love being flattered by somebody. <laughs> if someone writes an, an email saying, oh, I've got this, I want to do this, and I want to do this, it's 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 not quite the same as somebody who says, hey, I really heard your programme the other day. It was fantastic. <laughs> uh, could I come and do some work experience? I always think it's a very sh- cheap, shabby trick, but I mean, it does actually work. Um, then I think developing your own interests and expertise, particularly in our area in sort of documentary production and series production, where we're 
we're looking for people with great stories. So develop those expertise, get to know the sort of people that you would talk to and that you would put in stories and get to know the stories and then get to the stage of developing ideas. I mean, go around with a notepad and just scribble down a thought every now and again that, hey, it's the anniversary of so-and-so coming up. What would you be praying about that? Or I've met this somebody or other who's doing this amazing uh, relief work in wherever it is. And, you know, this is a really interesting story. They've got an interesting personal story to tell. Probably the best route is just to, to, to look at, I mean, I'm biased, but the independent sector in, in radio terms is always interested in hearing from people with good ideas for, for programmes which, which could develop into something. And most of them, are, are, we're definitely in that category, are only too willing to have those people involved in making the programmes. Don't worry, don't feel that your programme idea is going to be lifted and taken from you and given to somebody else and you'll Stolen. be given a nice little, nice, nice little note saying thank you very much and here's a book token. And if people are wanting to put their pieces together to send off, are there any tips for presenting, do's and don'ts, practice that they could do you know because it's a skill that not everybody is born with absolutely and I think you've got to sort of absorb it by osmosis almost and it's no good locking yourself in a room in your box room with a microphone and saying right now I'm going to be a radio presenter I mean you've got to have something to say you've got to sort of be able to put it over in a neat communicating way and I'd say listen to what other people are doing listen to some of the great names listen to the people who are doing it really well and really cleverly and uh you know, I don't want to name too many names, but there are huge numbers of people that I sort of admired and watched. Uh, a local radio presenter, Barbara Sturgeon, the wonderful Charles Wheeler, who I had the privilege of working for, with for uh, 12, 15 years. Sue McGregor, who is regal in her control of discussions and her way in which she can bring people into a situation where they can tell their story in, in an extraordinary way. And other presenters, uh, Libby Purvis for the ability to sort of dance from one subject to the next, um, Nikki Campbell, Richard Bacon for the ability to sort of cajole their audience into into giving and giving and giving. And then look at sort of people on the world service, the great Fred Dove, the presenter of Outlook for many years, a wonderful communicator in a way which had such simplicity of language because he knew he was broadcasting to people whose first language was not always English. And yeah. so the idea of knowing your audience is so important for someone like him and for everybody in radio. Excellent. Thank you so much. It's been delightful. <laughs> Will you come back again? Sure. I feel there's so many anecdotes that we haven't covered <laughs> that I want to know more about. We, do a series. Okay. we could anecdotes. do a series. Thank you very much, David. That was David Prest from Whistledown. And so to pick the poster, Kerry, tell us who you've picked this week. I've been talking to Monkman this week and he's got an international background and he's been teaching in South Korea, teaching English in South Korea. And he came to the forum to see how he could market his skills and experience that he's gained whilst teaching abroad to employers in the finance sector in the UK. So I asked him what advice he got and how he used it. Uh, Jacqueline Bond gave sound and impartial advice in two streams. First, she advised me to acquire more relevant work experience uh, in temporary financial management roles. Second, she advised me that postgraduate study may not help my CV. Uh, I, I wanted to know whether having further qualifications would make me noticeable in a job market that has endured the throes of recession. Uh, Ms. Bond's advice helped me to understand that further study is not always as helpful as it seems, however, because employers are continuing to emphasize work experience. These were 
sober insights. Are you enjoying your teaching experience over it, there? You know, in fact, in fact, I am. And I would recommend it, what it's done for me in terms of cultural sensitivity and in terms of understanding a completely alternative perspective, I think will benefit me for the rest of, of my career and the rest of my life. It's been such an expansive experience, such a broadening experience that I would recommend it to anyone who's even just curious about travel and work abroad. All right, so what was the first job you ever had? A football referee. Let's say that the important skill there was conflict management. If you're looking for, for a less stressful role, become a basket weaver, become a potter, <laughs> don't set foot on a football pitch. And I don't say that as a joke, I say that in utmost seriousness. <laughs> okay, good advice. What's the best job you've ever had? In fact, being an English teacher. The reason for this is there are rewards in teaching um, that I wouldn't have anticipated. Jobs teaching English are easy to get, but they are not necessarily easy to do. Um, but you will find with hands-on experience with young people that um, it gives you a new insight into your own development. So we've heard about the upside of your career. What's the worst job that you've ever had? The worst job that I've ever done was as a supermarket shelf stacker. I would work overnight. It was just a combination of all the worst factors. I would have to work during the dark hours. I would be tired. Um, I found in my company they tended to be the people whose social skills would not allow them to work during the day. What would you say is the best piece of careers advice you've ever been given? Do not expect your co-workers to be your friends. Oh, interesting. What's been the proudest moment of your career? Finishing my undergraduate degree without any loan debt. I paid for my full course in cash with savings and money that I earned working, uh, working part-time and I left university without a single financial worry. That's an achievement. I can see why you are proud and I imagine it's pretty rare as well. <clears throat> How would you pitch yourself to a potential employer in 30 seconds? I'm an internationally mobile graduate with a 2-1 degree in law from Nottingham Trent University. In my career, I have worked in basic financial, administrative, and teaching roles, and I have developed the following essential skills. Concise communication, time management, teamwork, and initiative. I want to apply these skills to accountancy. I am looking for employers who offer good quality training and support to their new accountants, and in return, I am ready to prove that when you've hired me, you've hired wisely. Oh, excellent. You've crammed some excellent stuff in there. I'm very did you impressed. Get the play on words? I did. did. Get the play on words I did. I like. I liked it very much. I thought it was Best witty words. as well as extremely informative. Well, Monkman was a very interesting character, Kerry. Yeah, interesting background as well. I should just maybe explain the wisely pun. His name is Chris Wisely. So that's why you hired wisely. I see. I see. Yeah, that makes it a bit a bit clearer. So, what's happening next week, Kerry? Next week, on February the 24th, we're going to be talking about how you can use social media to find work. So carrying on with what we were talking to. It's a bit of a theme in the past yeah. three weeks, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's it. We're running with the theme. Yeah. People might want to know how to you know, perfect their profile online or maybe correct it if they've, uh, if they've got something compromising on there. Excellent. That's it for now. All that's left is to thank our guest, Mr. David Prest, Julian Lindley, Kate Taylor for her outside broadcast, poster Monkman, and of course, Carrie-Anne Eustace. Thank you. Remember, you can find out more on everything we've talked about on careers.guardian.co.uk. Careers Talk was produced by Kate Taylor. I'm LJ Filatrani. Thanks for listening.